Welcome to High Energy Health, where together we explore the leading edge of wellness and happiness. I'm your host, Dawson Church. By choosing this time together, you're declaring your commitment to a positive mindset, elevated emotions, and a great life. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. Hello and welcome to today's episode of High Energy Health. We are so glad you are tuning in with us today. I'm Miriam Paninski, your guest host, and I'm so thrilled about today's conversation with the amazing Stephen Cope. Thank you so much for being here today, Stephen. Thank you, Miriam. It's a pleasure to be with you and all your listeners and viewers. Yes, yeah. hear us, yeah. <laughs> so for those of you who may not yet know Stephen, but should get to know him swiftly, Stephen is a scholar in residence and Kripalu ambassador and the founder and former director of the Kripalu Institute for Extraordinary Living. And Stephen is also the recipient of both a Telly and an Apple Award for his work. And in his 25th anniversary edition of the Yoga Journal, named him one of the most influential thinkers, writers, and teachers on the current American yoga scene. And Stephen is a best-selling author. His books include yoga and the quest for the true self, the wisdom of yoga, the great work of your life, a guide for your journey to your true calling and soul friends, the transforming power of deep human connection and his, and that's what we're going to mostly talk about here today, his new highly acclaimed book, The Dharma in Difficult Times, which has been available since January 22. Yes. <laughs> yes. So I'm really excited to speak to you today about this really profound and important work you're offering here. And I said to Stephen before that I had just such a beautiful journey reading this book, and I can just like highly recommend everyone to pick up a copy. And I would like to start with you speaking a little bit about a detail in the title of your new sure, book, absolutely. which is actually the choice of the preposition. And I think it's a crucial detail that speaks yeah. to a lot of about your intention of this book, I feel. And so you called it the Dharma in difficult times, almost feeling like the Dharma within difficulty. Would you say more about this as well as the intention you had writing this book? Yes, it's funny that you bring this up because... It was an issue in titling the book. I wanted to call it the Dharma in difficult times, and others wanted to call it the Dharma of difficult times. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, we are right now living in profoundly difficult times. And we're actually, the world is facing a series of dilemmas that are so complex and that are also so sneaky. Global warming is sneaking up on us. The, um, the rise of autocracy all around the world, it's sneaking up on us even here. And yet we're living in a world, especially in our country, that's so divided that it's very hard to see how we'll be able to confront dilemmas of this kind. And one of the things that we learn in the Bhagavad Gita, which is a source book for my last couple of books, is that the real power in confronting a dilemma calls in what they call unified action. Unified action, that is the, the unity of the self with certitude, throwing yourself into the dilemma, and the unity of, 
of all beings. Honestly, Miriam, I started writing this book before COVID. And with COVID, the world changed so profoundly. And it wasn't just our having to come together to, to solve the problem of this virus, but also the way in which it unmasked racism again, another wave mm -hmm. of in civil rights, the way it unmasked well, who actually are the essential workers. It unmasked a lot of in American history. So there has been such a sea change in the world since I started the book. In January of 2021, it was pretty much done. It went off to the publisher. And I, I talked with my agent and said, we, we have to rewrite this book. We mm -hmm. really have to focus in on the particular teachings of this great book, the Bhagavad Gita, the really the pinnacle of, of Indian wisdom writing, the way in which it speaks directly to our times. I, my office is littered with chapters. <laughs> you know, and it's so interesting. It, it doesn't often happen in a writer's life that you encounter a paradigm shift of such magnitude that you, right. you have to throw it away and start over again. Right. And we'll talk more about these dilemmas that you touched mm -hmm. um, upon and the importance of those. But to start at the beginning or to start at the basics, would you in a few words, and I know this is a simple question with not such a simple answer, is what is yeah. Dharma? Dharma is one of those wonderful Sanskrit words that's really packed with meaning. And very often, if you study Buddhism, you will hear it described as, as path, truth, law. In the Bhagavad Gita, in the great Bhagavad Gita tradition, it always means one thing, which is sacred duty, true calling, true mm -hmm. vocation. And it goes back to the Sanskrit root, DHR, is the root of the word Dharma. DHR as a root means to hold together. So the whole concept of Dharma goes back to 3,000 years ago to the Vedic period. Great God Indra lived on Mount Miru, and it was said that he had cast a vast net over the entire universe. Mm -hmm. And at the vertex of each warp and woof strand of this net was a gem. And that gem is an individual soul. That soul's duty to hold together that part of the web, to discover his or her unique gifts and capacities and possibilities and bring them fully to bear on his or her or our little lives in our corner of the web. If we do not do our duty and our sacred duty, then the whole thing begins to disintegrate from our little part of the web. It's a huge, hugely important concept that Bhagavad Gita is the most important scripture of Dharma. Mm -hmm. And it's the one teaching that virtually every villager in India knows. Not every temple, but many temples and mm -hmm. certainly much iconography in India depicts this great conversation between Krishna and Arjuna, between Krishna, mm -hmm. who's an avatar of God, and Arjuna, who's the warrior. And the story of Dharma is not complicated, really. Mm -hmm. It's a fairly mm -hmm. simple story. As I lay out in my first book, The Great Work of Your Life, there are basically four pillars of living a dharmic life. The first one is to discern your dharma, to find out what your calling is in this lifetime. And the second one is to then do it full out, bring everything you've got to the work. This is called the doctrine of unified action that we talked about. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. discernment, then action, then do it. Bring everything you've got to the work. Krishna mm -hmm. says it's better to fail at your own dharma than to succeed at the dharma of another. Once you know what you're called to, bring it, okay? Discernment, mm -hmm. unified action. The third one, which is complicated for many of us, is mm -hmm. let go of the outcome. Let go of the mm -hmm. fruit. Because we don't really know what 
success or failure means. We live in a, in a much larger tapestry and we don't always understand what success or failure actually is. So let go of the outcome. And then the fourth one is turn it over to God or turn it over to something bigger than yourself. Turn it over to, so in my case, when I worked for Kripalu, which is a big work in the world, turn it over to the success of our work and of Kripalu. Mm -hmm. Those four pillars are laid out elegantly in the Bhagavad Gita. And that's just a very little snippet of what Dharma is about and what it can be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you so much for summarizing this. I was just taking notes while you were speaking because this is real kind of, it's really great to kind of hear these things again, like compromised in such a, you know, such a short amount of time. So this is really helpful. Let's go back to the Bhagavad Gita because, you know, and one of the things, and we talked about this briefly, that you're known for is in your text is that quality of making these ancient scriptures of yoga, wisdom, mm -hmm. spiritual knowledge accessible mm -hmm. to your Western readers. <laughs> what is, and let's talk a little bit more about what the importance is of these essential scriptures, or namely the Bhagavad Gita, which, as you said, also takes a really prominent role in your, the source book. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, the Gita was a revolutionary book, Indian spirituality, because it was written probably around third century BCE. But prior to that, Miriam, a spiritual life was seen to be a life of renunciation a life mm -hmm. of leaving the world. And you know, in the 8th century BCE, there was this exodus of people from the traditional religious hierarchies, you know, into the meditative life, living in small groups and crows and on mountains and so forth. Mm -hmm. Up until the time of the Gita, the spiritual life was involved a tremendous amount of renunciation that most of us are not really capable of. The Gita was this revolutionary treatise about how do you live a passionate life in the world? How do you live a life of passion in the marketplace, in the world? And, and it, it transforms letting go of action itself, which is the life of the contemplative, to letting go of the fruits of action, which is a mm -hmm. very huge shift. Krishna says, this is, the, this is the passion that is not contrary to the Dharma. You're required to bring all your passion into your work. This was a revolutionary, really important scripture. It opened the opportunity of living a truly spiritual life uh, to the masses. It was not translated into English until 18, I believe, 1820. Immediately, who picked it up in this country? Naturally, Ralph Waldo Emerson picked it up and then <laughs> gave it to Thoreau. Thoreau takes it to Walden Pond and Thoreau begins to delve into this scripture and, and really to live it. And it's his writings, and it's his writings, especially his essay on civil disobedience, which planted the seed of the genius of the Gita that takes us through from, from Gandhi to Martin Luther King and that yeah. whole beautiful trajectory. So it began to enter American consciousness in the 1840s through the Transcendentalists and, and then on from there. And it's had a tremendous impact with a lot of important thinkers. Yeah, just letting this sink in for a second. But And you also start with the Gita in here, actually, in your first chapter, or actually call it lesson. We'll talk more about yeah. the meaning of that. The first lesson called Take Refuge. And you start with the famous dilemma of Arjuna, the night for the battle, the soothsayer said, 
of it would tear the fabric of the universe and Krishna being by his side but in disguise still not as the avatar but as a mentor would you say more about this beginning that you well, chose this is such a brilliant text and one of the reasons is that it's a story it's a story and so much of certainly in my world in the yoga world writing is so theoretical and so high mm -hmm. so metaphysical now what we have a story we have a story of arjuna who's the greatest warrior in the kingdom but very neurotic just like we are. <laughs> this is a character woody allen could have come up with <laughs> He's full of doubt. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what his calling is. He's us. And then you have Krishna, who is secretly an, an avatar of God, who's wise and calm and kind of gently all-knowing. And they sit at the edge of a great a battle field, a battle that's about to take place, and talk about the questions about, well, how do I know what I'm called to in this life? Arjuna mm -hmm. wants to know, am I called to fight in this fight? Is this a good fight? And how do I know? And who guides me? And what wisdom do I listen to? So here we have Arjuna coming to a crossroads where he has to make an important moral decision. And this is how we, we live in this all the time. We daily... Yeah upon crossroads where we have to make important decisions and choices. How do we make them? What guides us? This is the setup for this brilliant book and this brilliant dialogue. So it's a, you know, it's not a complicated story. So mm -hmm. they, they start out with Arjuna at the very beginning. He says, well, to fight or not to fight. And then he cries out to Krishna. He says, oh, Krishna, conflicting duties confound my mind. I don't know what to do. And he falls to the floor of the chariot. And the first chapter is called the oppression of Arjuna. And it's us, <laughs> us on the floor of yeah. our chair. Like right now, what's my duty toward Ukraine and the fact that they're fighting for freedom and democracy over there? What's yeah. what's my responsibility for global warming here on a daily basis in my office? So it's just a beautiful setup. And then they have this great dialogue. And then you wonder, well, what happens? Does he fight? And it's so <laughs> And, and how how does he make that decision? So there it is. It's it's a very simple storyline, but very profound. But you do while you keep the cliffhanger of how it ends, yeah. <laughs> you, uh, you do introduce what what Krishna prompts him to do when when Arjuna falls on his knees. And what is that? Exactly. And the first thing Krishna says to him is, dude, take refuge in me. Mm -hmm. Now, Arjuna does not yet know that Krishna is God, but right. Krishna has been with him for a decade and he knows he can trust Krishna. He knows he can lose himself by being enfolded in those big, strong arms. And so essentially, Krishna says, Arjuna, take refuge in me. And he's, he's saying to the reader, he's saying, take refuge in God right? Mm -hmm. The first thing to do when you're confronted with a huge dilemma, what I call the disorienting dilemma, and, and the definition of a disorienting dilemma is so unravels your yourself that, that mm -hmm. you, you need to shift your view of how the world mm -hmm. actually works. So, so take refuge. Now, I start with Gandhi for a number of reasons. First of all, Gandhi is so well-respected and understood to be the one human being whose life really does reflect the Gita. And he says this over and over again. 
He says, if, if you want to understand the Gita, folks, look at my life, because I've based my life on the Gita. Yeah. It's interesting and important to see that when Gandhi was confronted with the biggest dilemma of his life, he gets back to India after serving in South Africa for 20 years. Everybody, Nehru and, and all the rest of them want him to go into battle with the British Raj. Right. And he says, nope, not going to do that. Going to go off, found an ashram, meditate. Yeah. And pray. I'm going to settle down so that I can regain the balance of the mind and so that I can begin to discern what would be the skillful action here. Mm -hmm. And this is important because on a daily basis, it's so often a great idea not to go right into action, but to settle down, to breathe. Mm -hmm to pray, mm -hmm. to meditate a little bit, and to discern what would be the wise thing to do here. And, you know, we live in a culture which is given to action, take yes. action right away. Yes. I'm a huge fan of, the, of Queen Elizabeth II, who I love. She says, very often, the best thing to do is nothing. <laughs> I love that. And you can see what a successful life she's had of it. Very often, for Gandhi, he goes to Gujarat province, he founds this ashram, and for seven or eight months, he sits and prays and spins thread out of cotton. And finally, he does recover the balance of his mind. He makes mm -hmm. wise choices mm -hmm. and he decides, yes, I'm going to dive into the battle. I will be the spiritual head of the Indian impulse for independence. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But time and time again, when people urge Gandhi to go into action, he goes into quiet. He goes into yes. stillness. And we will get back to quiet and stillness. And we're taking a short little break. Please tune Great. right back in with us after just a couple of minutes of break. Thank you so much. Hello and welcome back to today's episode of High Energy Health. I'm Miriam Paninsky and I'm in conversation with Stephen Cope. And we just talked about Gandhi and the importance of taking refuge, retreating of retrieving before taking action. And I want to get back to in a moment. And actually, I, I want to pick up on the structure because we haven't really introduced this yet. And I found the structure of the book very fascinating and special. So it is structured in four lessons, you call them, you don't call them chapters, you call them lessons. And in each of those lessons, you have the reader follow the path or the dilemma of a person mm -hmm. or several trailblazing mm -hmm. figures, epitomes yeah. of growth, some of them well-known and some of them maybe less. The right. first one, as you said, is, is Gandhi. The second, Henry David Thoreau and Harriet Beecher Stowe. The third, Charles Russell Lowell and Sojourner Truth. And the fourth, Marian Anderson, Jonathan Daniels and Ruby Sales. So why this structure? Why this specific, specific set of people? What was the inspiration here and why lessons? So first of all, my, I, I feel it's so important that we bring the ideas of Dharma and the genius of the Gita into the wider world right now at this time, because that treatise does bring us some ideas about how to manage the, the huge dilemmas that we're all facing together. So I call them lessons because I think they have huge applicability to, mm -hmm. to our lives right now. In terms of the structure of the book, I wanted to trace the impact of these ideas from the Gita, basically from Henry David Thoreau, his very mm -hmm. 
important work in 30s and 40s conquered Massachusetts. And then if you notice, there's a timeline that takes us from Thoreau in the 1830s and 40s to Harry mm-hmm. Beach, uh, just before the Civil War, to Charles Russell Lowell in the Civil War, Sojourner Truth just before and in mm-hmm. the Civil War. And then we go to then we go to, to uh, Marian Anderson, and now mm-hmm. we're talking about the 20s and Jim Crow in, in America. And then we go to the influence on Martin Luther King, Jonathan Daniels, and Ruby Sales. So you can trace this trajectory. Now, I put Gandhi first because the first teacher really is going to take refuge. Now, each of the characters that I described took refuge. Thoreau took refuge. He was on a writing retreat that Harriet Beecher Stowe took refuge in her own, and so did did all of the rest of them in a certain way. But Gandhi is the most vivid portrayal of that lesson. So in a way, Gandhi's kind of out of order if you want to see this as a as a trajectory of the impact of the ideas of Dharma uh, across mm-hmm. America, right up to the present day, because Ruby Sales is still alive. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and I wanted to choose just one dilemma. So okay. I started out going back and forth between, I was going to do Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Germany, and I was going to do, oh, I was all over the map. And I thought, <laughs> let's just take one dilemma. And mm-hmm. so I, I took the dilemma of xenophobia and racism. Yes. Partly because we're in a wonderful way. We're in a new episode of interest and concern and awareness about about racism and structural racism. And partly because that's where the impact of the Gita really started with Thoreau. And most people don't realize that. So that's why I tried to keep the I tried to keep the dilemma the same and the responses to it very, very different. One person responds with Marian Anderson with her gift and another with activism and another with intellectual, you know, investigation of the problem. And I don't know how obvious that structure is. I hope it's more obvious than I think it is and useful. But that was the uh, that was the thinking. Well, I found it incredibly useful and inspiring. And I want to go back to what you what you just said also like in relation to systemic racism and what I find tremendously important and what really struck me is that you point out that none of these spiritual heroes avoid confrontation. They go into the pain and what going into that pain, seeing the catastrophe came for them was also a point what may be called the dark night of the soul or and anger, doubt, doubt with the creator, point of God. If you are good, why? Why is this happening? War, Auschwitz, yeah. slavery, colonies. You also point that out quite bluntly in your prologue, along with some things we may not be looking at yet, such as the catastrophe of, of like the daily catastrophe of global warming, the perpetuation of slavery in, the, in this mm-hmm. country, specifically in the form of systemic racism. But again, what is the potential of this point of darkness and doubt and agony that also your the heroes that you picked are going through? Well, it's so important because each of these characters faces a dilemma. And it's such a a big and important dilemma that it forces each of them to gather together every scintilla of strength and intellect, everything they have, they have to bring to the table. Of course, we're back to the idea of doctrine of unified action. 
what we find is that the disorienting dilemma has all these possibilities in it because mm -hmm. it forces you to look at how things are, to see things clearly, and to work through your own doubts and to come mm -hmm. to clarity about how the world works, what would be a skillful response on my part, mm -hmm. and how should I proceed? So every single character in this book begins tied up in knots and doubt um, about how to proceed in the face of difficulty. It's out of that struggle that they're forced to bring everything they've got to it, to let go of the fruits, because that becomes irrelevant. It's just like, mm -hmm. no, this is what I have to do. So Thoreau, for example, Thoreau was Thoreau was having a lovely time in Walden Pond. He'd already been there for a year or so when this happened. He was on a writing retreat. He was confronted with the truth of slavery that was embedded yeah. in the Constitution, the truth of the way the federal government was dealing with Native Americans, which mm -hmm. was horrendous, and mm -hmm. the truth of the war in Mexico, which was about to explode the issue of slavery all over the country. He Stephen, hold, yeah. hold the thought for me for just a couple of minutes, please. We okay. do need to go into a commercial break. I will make you pick up on that right okay. away because I can't That's wait good. to continue. Please be right back with us in just a couple of minutes. Hello and welcome back to today's episode of High Energy Health. Today I'm in conversation with the amazing Stephen Cope and we were just talking about Thoreau's dilemma, Thoreau's crisis. Would you mind yeah. picking up where you just were, Stephen? No, so Thoreau's having a lovely time at Walden and almost accidentally he runs into the tax collector who says, dude, you have not paid your tax in your poll tax in many years. Thoreau realizes this has been his small protest. I'm not paying my poll tax because I think my government is behaving badly. Well, he gets thrown in jail and okay. it's it's kind of a big deal. Thoreau is one of the major families in, in town He's never been in jail before, but he he realizes, no, I have to do this. I have to protest this bad behavior on the part of my mm -hmm. government. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, his aunt, who's mortified about the whole thing, puts a veil over her face, comes to the jail, pays off his debt. So he's sprung the next day. But he's still left with deciding, well, what is my responsibility to the state? I, I Am I tacitly supporting slavery and a war on Mexico and mm -hmm. in my behavior? So Thoreau, he doesn't really want to do this, but he spends mm -hmm. the next 18 months in this moral dilemma of what's my responsibility here? And meanwhile, the town is waiting to hear from him. Why did you spend Why did you go to jail? Mm -hmm. Emerson's Emerson thought it was a stunt. It wasn't a stunt at all. It was authentic. And um, finally, 18 months later, Thoreau has written the essence of his essay on civil disobedience. And he gives it to the town in the form of a, a, a talk that he gave in, in one of the churches. He did that because he had to, because that was his, that was the way he wrestled with dilemmas. He thought mm -hmm. about them. He read about them. He read all the great works. He read, I don't know, Cicero's essay on duty or whatever. And this was his statement on duty. He wrote it. It was brilliant. Totally disappeared. Nobody ever heard from it again for 10 years until mm -hmm. Thoreau was long dead. And somebody found it and said, well, this is brilliant. And it became a major factor in supporting people like Mandela and King and Gandhi in their struggles against xenophobia, racism, colonialism, yes. the whole lot. 
lot of yeah. it. So this, the, the moral is here you have Thoreau living a little life in Concord, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. you know, he famously said, I have traveled extensively in Concord, right? I, <laughs> so yeah. he did his duty. You remember yes. Indra's web, his little part of the world, what he did, which was study and write and think, he put it out into the world. He didn't pay attention to its success or failure because everything he wrote was a failure, basically. Walden never sold more than 800 copies. Yeah. He was alive. And, and he died. But he did his duty. He did his work. And he said, famously, he said, no matter how small the beginning, any work that is well done is done forever. So he made sure his work was well done and it became immortal. Just as he predicted, it became hugely influential. So yeah. from that small little life in Concord to the world, yes. any work, no matter how small the beginning, any work well done is done forever. Love that. Yeah. yeah. I love that too. And I also really love that you point out that you really like bring to the fourth the radical I, you can call it the radical dharma of Thoreau because you know he is you know also among scholars you know we, we see him as the as the nature writer often you know right. but you know if you read him closely which is a side yeah. note you know even his nature writing I believe bears that radical dharma in a very kind of profound and subtle subtle yes. way but I do love that you point out this you bring to the fourth this Thoreau that yeah. is often kind of yeah. not even not even acknowledged aside from his you know nature reflections and poems the key thing miriam about thoreau is he believed that it was all about how you live and that every action that we take in this life matters so now we have this whole way of living where it's about means and ends and the ends just the means the ends justify the means that's the way the republicans are living sorry for right. Right now, <laughs> justify the means. Oh, we'll get some good. We'll get some good federal judges out of Trump. No, Thoreau said every action has meaning and has an effect on the entire field. So it's all about the means. It's all about how you do it. Now that makes him very radical. Yes, I believe so too. I totally agree. And again, I'm I'm really loving that you bring this to the fourth. So if I may ask, you you do very generously share about your own dilemmas, about your own crises in your life. You, I think you point out three crises. Would you mind sharing a bit about this journey and about what what these brought for you personally? Yeah. No, not at all. I'll, I'll share one that wasn't in the book that mm -hmm. I didn't really to write about because it was a little too personal at the time but i actually wrote the book miriam because i had a huge dilemma that confronted me not that many years ago and you know i'm in a relationship with a number of large institutions that i right. work with directly and one of these institutions i won't say which treated me <laughs> treated me incredibly unfairly and and i couldn't believe it like i i didn't deserve it it was all politics institutional politics I managed to get myself to the age of 60 without having been treated seriously unfairly in life. And like Thoreau, I had to wrestle with it. Wow. Okay. Life is unfair, but most everybody has to deal with some even mammoth amounts of unfairness. So just think about the, the underclasses in America who, mm -hmm. who just deal with unfairness all the time. Mm -hmm. And so I went into the book because I had this dilemma that I had to work through. And, and the question was, how do I act in this? Do, do I go to war with this institution, which mm -hmm. is a very powerful, wealthy institution? I had to think that through. Do I <laughs> go to war or 
Arjuna had that question, do I go to war? And that's what started the book. So I, I got set off on this pilgrimage of this book by my own personal dilemma, which forced me to look at my own view of the world. But mm -hmm. that's what dilemmas do. And they call them disorienting dilemmas in literature now because they force you to rethink and to look a little closer at, okay, how does the world actually work? And, and what's really, what's true? Yeah. Thank, thank you so much for sharing this. We will be right back for our last slot in just a couple of minutes. Sure. Thank you for tuning right back in with us. Welcome back to the last bit of conversation with the wonderful Stephen Cope, who just very generously shared about his own dilemmas, so to say, his own disorienting dilemmas, as you said, they're called in literature these days. Um, and what really kind of brings you to a deeper quest of this of this mm -hmm. dharma as you kind of like raise it or as you kind of like put it um so beautifully so i wanna i wanna stir this to another question that i'm very curious about and it may be a little weird but i'm i'm you know i share that i'm also writing and i'm also writing yeah. within academia and trying to finish a dissertation yeah. while also integrating yeah. writing that seems to be more removed from what is generally assumed to be a academic writing kind of more yeah. of of my own spiritual quest so i'm i'm really curious about your writing process itself mm -hmm. so reading this book there was really many times the sense of flow and actually thoughtlessness and I often got the feeling you must have just channeled this book in thoughtless awareness mm -hmm. yet there is so much what I'm going to call worldly knowledge for the lack of a better word you know you're quoting scriptures people history mm -hmm. can you speak a bit about your writing process what that looks like or feels like and maybe the, is there a balance you strike between meditation and thought-based writing I would I'm very curious yeah. about that I have a very strong and intentional meditation practice which I've followed for 73 now for 40 years really and so I regularly sit and I sit by myself and with the group I do yoga with a group three times a week I have a, a chanting group so for me, I, the, my writing process is this, Miriam, I get what I call a dharma assignment. Uh -huh. And that means that I get real assignment, like, okay, this is the next book you have to write. This is what And that comes write. in meditation? or It comes yeah. in meditation. And it comes in, in long walks in the woods. And Mm -hmm. it, it usually doesn't come full blown, but it yeah. comes gradually and it gets clarified. And once I'm on to a Dharma assignment, then I'm capable of bringing everything I've got to it. So time is, you know, you, in publishing, you have contracts and time deadlines, but I've always found that I don't feel pressured by those. I'm going to bring everything I've got to this task that I really believe I'm assigned this task. This is mine to do. This is my little corner of the world. And then once I do that, I just let go. I show up every day. My motto is suit up and show up. I show up right here at my computer mm -hmm. at nine o'clock in the morning. I have a deal with myself that if I don't feel like writing, I don't have to, but mm -hmm. I have to get here into the chair. And the truth is almost never, ever does it happen that I don't want to work. I almost always want to work. And then I just pick up where I left off the day before. And I'm very reliant on the still small voice, the inner voice within, the, the hunches and the intuition. Mm -hmm. Try to really mm -hmm. follow that because like Gandhi, that's where the meat is. Yes. And I also, so 
I, I write the book, I write a, a whole draft, and I don't really know at the beginning of the book how it's going to show up. It can show up very differently as this book did than I. Yes. Plans are essential, or planning is essential, plans are worthless, etc. And then the main thing I do is edit and rewrite, edit and rewrite, yes. edit and rewrite, edit and rewrite. Mm-hmm show it to people, get feedback, put it aside. I will put a chapter aside for a couple of months and then I'll go yeah. back with fresh eyes. I edit and delete extensively and try to pare it down to try to pare the story down to its essentials mm-hmm. as much as I can. Very A lot of writing is editing for me and mm-hmm. rewriting actually. Yes. I think that was such a beautiful piece of advice. I just want to reiterate kind of the finding your assigned dharma with whatever you you do, whether it's writing or the creation of any kind of art, whatever you put out there in the mm-hmm. world to finding the assigned dharma of your specific gift channel, whatever it is you're using is such a good piece of advice. Thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you so much. I just want to point out to our audience, please check out Stephen's website, stephencope.com. There are several possibilities for you to to be and and, and meditate and work with Stephen, especially if if you're on the East Coast. Of course, Kripalu is still a really important hub for you, I I suppose, but there are a lot of opportunities. So I would really encourage the audience to check out the website and see, see where you can, where you can find Stephen and definitely look into not just this book, but so this newest, again, the Dharma in Difficult Times is brilliant, but I also do want to point out the other books that we mentioned in the beginnings, which you'll all find on, on the website. And of course, on Hay House, who Stephen write with. Thank you so much, Stephen, for sharing, for presence, for your loving attentiveness. And yeah, it was just an, an amazing conversation. Thank you, Miriam. Great to talk with you. Yeah. Thank and you so much. Come and visit me, everybody. I Yes, exactly. <laughs> Go. <laughs> and hereby we say um, bye to everyone and we, we will hear you next week. Bye.